Hi folks, a very quick announcement before we get started on the episode this week. And that is a huge thank you to Katie Unicorn Stewart. I don't know if your middle name really is Unicorn. If it is, that is an awesome name. So the fabulous Katie Unicorn Stewart gave us a recent review on Apple Podcasts about the recent Governance Summit summary. So five stars for Take On Board, she says. Loved the recent Governance Summit summary podcasts. Super useful. Katie, happy to help. Thank you so much. And thanks for taking the time to do a review. So a little prompt for others that might be listening. I love it when I get reviews and you might get read out on the pod as well. So get in there and work out how to do ratings and reviews and let me know what you think of the pod. All right, on with the show. Hi everyone, it's Helia. If you want to get on a board and you're not sure where to start, Board Kickstarter is for you. The 2020 program is in June and we'll take you through what skills are needed, where to look, board resumes, board interviews and more. Again, links in the show notes or in the Take On Board Facebook group. Just search Take On Board in Facebook to find us there. Now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Take On Board podcast, where we talk all things boards and governance. I'm your host, Halia Svensson. Being on a board can be interesting, valuable and exciting, yet it can also be really lonely, challenging and hard. So here at Take On Board, we'll bring you weekly tips, tricks and advice to help you build your governance wisdom. We'll shine a light on how to navigate your way onto your first board or to build your board portfolio. We'll also help you to work through those challenges that keep you awake at night. Each week, I'll talk to women who have been there, done that, and together we'll discover what we need to take on board to be your best in the boardroom. Today on the Take On Board podcast, I'm speaking with Jocelyn Ferlin about being an effective board member, about some governance challenges and the establishment of the Superannuation Complaints Tribunal's Advisory Council and where that led. Now, you might remember, Jocelyn, from just a couple of weeks ago where we were supposed to have this conversation, but it was just at the start of the COVID crisis and she's also the chair of Strathcona School. So we ended up talking about what was going on at the school and some of the governance decisions and operational decisions that were made at the time. So thank you and welcome back to the Take On Board podcast, Jocelyn. It's great to have you here. It's great to be back, Helia. Thank you. So I promise today we will get into the establishment of the Superannuation Complaints Tribunal Advisory Council and where that led. I promise we will get there today. But before we do that, given the conversation we had last time about COVID-19 and about Strathcona, I'd love to just get an update from you about where things are at. Thank you. Yes. So today is the first day of term two for Victorian school children. And it's fair to say that the messaging from the Commonwealth Government and the Victorian State Government is not entirely consistent at this point about children attending school. The message from the Victorian Government quite clearly is that if you can learn at home, learn from home, learn at home. But all the schools are open for students who can't learn at home. And the Commonwealth Government at this point is quite keen to keep schools open. For Strathcona, the school is is open for essential workers' children, but by and large the school is still closed, which was the decision that was made by the principal with the support of the board at the end of last term 
and the focus is very much on successful online learning. Schools have, have had to make various decisions in relation to fee relief, in relation to uh, standing down staff and contain their costs. And I think my view as the chair of the board of a school is that each school needs to make its own decisions based on its own community. And that although there's probably a lot of reporting about various decisions and a temptation to follow the herd, perhaps from a marketing perspective, the most important thing at a time like this is to make the right decisions for the parent community of the school of which you're, if you're on the board of a school, you're a governor of. Mm. I am supportive of Strathcona and the, the management of Strathcona with the support of the finance committee and the board making, making the right decisions for the Strathcona community. And we've got a terrific finance committee who had a, an extra meeting and I attended that. I'm not on the committee, but I attended that so that I was across what was going on in relation to the scenario planning for the financial survival. I think the other really important message for me, which is nothing to do with me being on the board, but is because I'm, I have a passion for education and for the sector, is that school is not about childcare. School is about educating students. And so very supportive of management's desire to ensure that online learning has a value, that the education community doesn't necessarily just give a discount because it's online rather than in-person learning. And I think it's really important to, to respect teachers. The temptation to say, let's keep the schools open because essential workers can't have their kids at home undermines the value of the education that they're actually getting during this crisis. And I think that's a really important message about this is about education. It's not necessarily about childcare. It's interesting in thinking about, you know, when we were talking just before about yeah, fee reductions and so on, if schools are getting it right in terms of the online delivery, the education should, I hope, still be being delivered. That's right. So what, what we've done at Strathcona is we've put a COVID addendum to our bursary policy so that people who, families that are suffering financial stress, there are, there are some guidelines there, which was what we talked about in the last podcast. That's all, that's all done. So we've reduced to zero the charge for um, the composite fee, which is, covers all the extracurricular activities because we're obviously not offering them. So the things that we're not offering, parents shouldn't pay for, obviously, or families shouldn't pay for, parents, guardians and others shouldn't pay for. So we've done all of that, but it's still we're still offering quality online learning. Okay. Well, thank you. Is there anything else that you wanted to update us about with the Strathcona and where things are at there? No, other, other than that, it's just a, it's a, move, it's a really rapidly moving feast. And again, my focus is to make sure that as the board are offering the principal the support that she needs to make day-to-day decisions in a rapidly changing environment. Absolutely. And just for clarity for people, we are recording this on the 15th of April. By the time you hear it, it might be a week or two later. But with things rapidly changing, as you say, I am finding more and more the need to date when these recordings are done, because often things have changed by the time they go to air, even if that's only a week later or a few days later. And everything I've I've just said might be completely irrelevant. Well, even so, it's great to get that update because when I spoke to you last time, we were right in the thick of things changing in some ways almost more rapidly then. We feel like we've got into a bit of a rhythm now about these for Victoria and Australia, the stage three restrictions. So, yeah, it's great to hear where things are at now. So now, finally, we get to turn to the Superannuation Complaints Tribunal Advisory Council and your role there. Can you just talk us through the establishment of the Superannuation Complaints Tribunal Advisory Council and where that led? 
I was chair of the Superannuation Complaints Tribunal. The Superannuation Complaints Tribunal is a, established by an act of the Commonwealth Parliament, the Resolution of Complaints Act, and it consists of the chair who's the executive officer who's appointed by the Governor-General and reports to the Australian Parliament. And the chair is responsible for the overall operations of the tribunal. Then there's a deputy chair and part-time members who are the people that they're appointed by the relevant minister and they make decisions about the complaints that come to the tribunal that can't be resolved by conciliation. And the secretariat is provided by ASIC. Tribunal's closed now because all of the new complaints, it's been closed to new complaints since November 2018 because of the establishment of the Australian Financial Complaints Authority. So it's currently winding down and dealing with the last of its complaints and then it'll be, it'll be shut and gone. One of the interesting things about that structure is that there is no board. The chair is responsible to the Australian Parliament via the treasurer. And it was in real life delegated to the Minister for Financial Services, whoever was holding that role from time to time. For some reason that I will forever be grateful for, but not quite sure how it happened, I was travelling overseas and I was staying in my sister's house in Switzerland. And it occurred to me that the governance was not that great in that it was the chair's world, really, because the chair didn't really report to anybody on a regular basis and conversely didn't have a sounding board discuss strategic issues with, other than the deputy chair, um, who was doing the deputy chair's work. So I thought about establishing the advisory council and I knew because the tribunal is established by legislation that this body would have no legislative authority or proper authority, but I felt the need to have a group of people as supporters and advocates for the tribunal, but also to bounce ideas off. And so I wrote the terms of reference on my sister's kitchen table, and it's only two pages, was only two pages, basically just setting out what I was hoping to achieve from having an advisory council. And then I thought about the membership of it. What I wanted to hear was the voices of the industry that tribunal was in. So I I looked at all of the sectors of the superannuation industry. So there's the industry super, there's public sector super, there's the insurers that are a really big part. And then there's corporate superannuation as well. So I contacted people that I knew and said to them, I'd like to set up this advisory council and I wanted an independent chair of it. I was so blessed, Helia, that everyone I contacted said yes, even though it was not paid. Mm. So I set up a, a framework, a charter, and a, and this is all kind of one-page stuff. It was not a really big overwork deal. We had a two-page page terms of reference which set out the membership and the, the purpose of the advisory council, which was to give strategic advice to me as the chair to make sure that the operations were the best they could be from a governance perspective and to give feedback to me. But And it wasn't written down, but also to be advocates for the tribunal with government, with the funders, with ASIC as the provider of our secretarial support. And so I invited the person that's now the customer advocate of the Commonwealth Bank as my retail person the CEO of HESTA as the industry fund person, the CEO of First State Super as the public sector fund person, the chair of the Corporate Super Association as the corporate super representative, the CEO of TAL Life, the then CEO of TAL Life as my insurance representative. And I also asked the Commonwealth Ombudsman if he would come as himself. And I asked the chair of the Fund Executives Association, which is all of the superannuation funds, all of the CEOs, belong to this body, I asked him to be the independent chair. And they all said yes. And so every quarter we I would do agenda papers, all that sort of stuff for them to talk through the financial status of the financial state, you know, all that sort of stuff. And really looking back on it now, 
I had seven mentors in the room with me every quarter to give me advice. And that was not why I set it up, but they were tremendous supporters. And, and we had some difficult conversations with ASIC because ASIC, you know, there was a tension for resort, adequate resourcing, that kind of thing. They were incredibly supportive of that. The independent chair then became the chair of First State Super. And so he didn't feel, because I, I had First State Super already on the council, he didn't feel he could continue as independent chair. So the Commonwealth Ombudsman became the independent chair, which was terrific. We had a consumer rep too. I shouldn't have forgotten that because that was really important to me as well. The consumer rep is um, a guy by the name of John Beryl, who's probably the best known superannuation consumer lawyer in Australia. He was from a partner at Morris Blackburn and he's now a partner at Beryl Watson. So he brought the consumer perspective, which was really important. Interestingly, in Australia, it's always been curious to me that there hasn't been a consumer group for superannuation, given that most Australians have it. And given that it's compulsory, it's curious to me that we don't have like a taxpayers association. We don't have a superannuation fund members association that I could draw on for my consumer rep. So the the near the best thing I could do was was John. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah, it's a good ref- it's an interesting reflection. For years I've thought that's something that I think needs attention, but anyway. And there's been various attempts to do it over the years. It hasn't quite landed in the right space place yet, but it's still worth thinking about, I think. The other thing I didn't realise at the time was that these people all had adversarial relationships outside of the council, particularly CBA and John Beryl in Storm, the Storm Financial Matter, and yet they put that all aside and came together for the purpose of the tribunal and, I suppose, supporting me. And it was born out of an idea on, a tra- on travels. And I think for me, apart from the value that it gave me and my incredible gratitude to that group of people who stayed on after I left and helped the chair of the tribunal when the tribunal was closed down by the government. In the Ramsey review, there was Ian Ramsey was commissioned to write a review about whether all the dispute resolution bodies should merge. So there was three of us. There was FOS, the Financial Ombudsman Service, there was the COSL, which was the Credit Ombudsman Service, and there was the Tribunal. And we were the only statutory one. And Ian Ramsey was commissioned by the government to write a review about whether they should all merge and why. And In that report, he talks about the Advisory Council as if it has some, he refers to it as having a proper place in the superannuation complaints tribunal landscape. And I thought, you can use your influence and you can have ideas and you can make a difference. And the purpose was to do better dispute resolution for the complainants. So it was always, for me, the real clarity of purpose was to, to improve the governance around the operations of the tribunal by having this feedback forum and I think it worked. I think it, it made the tribunal a better place for complainants. And I am um, eternally grateful to those that group of people who gave of their time and energy to support that purpose. And it's, of course, exactly the way a board, in a way, a board of independent directors should work, although they weren't really independent in a way, but leaving that aside, you know, to provide that different views and provide that wisdom and to be a mentor effectively to the CEO. You were the chair, but effectively the CEO in a way of an organisation. I'm interested, I just want to dig a bit more when you'd said they all come from their own interests in a way and were sometimes adversarial outside the boardroom, well, the advisory council room, but when they came together, they put that aside and worked together. What was it that made that happen? Because that's key, really, to effective discussions in the boardroom. What was it that helped them do that? I think it was having a defined shared purpose. I think it's a credit to the individuals concerned. And it was one of the lessons for me about 
wherever I am, making sure that I'm in that room with that hat on for that purpose and giving of my best for that, whatever that cause is. And I think they were just incredibly professional, wise leaders who were able to do that. But I do think that it is really important to have a purpose to galvanise around as well. So if you are a CEO or a chair of a board, ensuring that purpose is always front of mind will help people to put the right hat on in the room that they're in. And I think at First State Super that plays particularly well because our purpose, we put members first, and that's not unusual in the superannuation industry. The superannuation industry puts members first. But one of the things that we do at First State Super, one of the things is we have a, a plastic androgynous person and that person sits on our board tables in all of our board meetings and all of our committee meetings and we've got a really big one that stands behind the CEO and the chair when, when we're doing public presentations. And it sounds gimmicky but it's actually not because it really reminds us that of the purpose that we're there for, which is we're there for our members and to maximise outcomes for our members. And sorry, this is a bit off the track, but First Aid Super acquired the 40-year um, rights to the Victorian Land Titles Office. And I went to sign the contract because I was in, on the investment committee and because it was in Victoria and, I, and I'm a Victorian director, I went to sign the contract and the Treasurer of Victoria was signing the contract as well. So there was a big meeting with all these people in the room and it was on a Sunday and it was all hush-hush until it was announced the next day. And I said to the, the head of direct assets, bring Sam, this person's name this is Sam, I said, bring Sam with you. And we put Sam on the table in front of all, with all of the folders of documents that had to be signed and we had this plastic Sam. And the Treasurer said, what's that? Told him the story about how that reminds us why we're doing all of this. And Sam is our why. Our member is our why. It was a terrific story, and but it's it, it was really real and it's really real to us as a board at First Aid Super. We hear a lot about bringing the consumer voice into the boardroom or the customer voice into the boardroom or the patient voice into the boardroom or whatever it may be. That's a really beautiful way of reminding what they're there for. And I was going to ask if, now I know Sam has a name, I was going to ask if Sam had a name. Sam clearly does. Fabulous way of reminding us around whoever our ultimate purpose is or ultimate responsibility is to. That's a beautiful way of doing it. And I do think that with the Super Complaints Tribunal Advisory Council, I think there was a real shared purpose there too, which made it, which helped people to remember what they were in the room for and put the, you know, it, all the other bits and pieces. Like all, all non-executive directors have four or five different jobs. It's really important to be able to focus on the why that you're doing a particular role. And it's it's not about my career or, and I'm not, and the why is not about me. The why is about the purpose for that organisation with the original question about how do you bring people together, whether it's your superannuation stakeholders who are at odds outside the boardroom or, you know, even around diversity in the boardroom. We, we need diversity in the boardroom of different experiences and different attributes and so on. That tip, I guess, around staying true to purpose helps bring people together regardless of different views or different interests or whatever it may be. And that those different views are really important to get yeah. decisions, but but the decision, the, the purpose of the decision is really important as well. Absolutely. So bringing people together around that. Okay, so that that's a great tip, I guess, for people on bringing those diverse views together and something that worked for you by the sounds of things. 
in bringing that group together. A, they all said yes to you. I also noted that. In fact, interestingly, what was the magic there that just meant when you picked up the phone to all of these people, they said yes? I really don't know. Mm. And some of them travelled interstate at their own expense to come to Melbourne every mm. quarter to, mm. meet with, to meet with us. I guess they must have thought it was a worthwhile purpose. Yeah. Yes. That they were making a difference as well and that they were providing support in a, in a way that they was tangible, they understood. It was a limited time. So it was, it was, I think we met for two hours, once a quarter. They probably had a couple of hours preparation and thinking time. It wasn't a huge impost and presumably somebody funded, like their organisations funded them to travel and that, that kind of thing. I do think a lot of people, if you give them an easy way to give back, will be prepared to give back. Absolutely. Yeah, it's true. It is certainly the case that I'm often saying to people, you know, pick up the phone and just ask person X. Well, in a way, you are here because that's exactly what I did. Picked up the phone (laughs) to somebody else, my intermediary. Thank you, Julie Bignall, who did the introduction. So, you know, Julie, can you introduce me to Jocelyn? I'd like her to be on the podcast because somebody else has said she heard her speak and was fantastic. Mostly people will say yes, unless there is good reason not to. I think you do have to be clear about what you're asking for and be clear that it's not for your own aggrandizement as well. Because I was asking for support for the tribunal, yes, it was personal support probably. You'd have to ask them why they said yes, I guess. But I was clear about what I was asking, what the time commitment was, what the purpose was, what I was hoping to achieve. And I think you have to, you have to go to some effort to make it easy for people to say yes. We all get lots of invitations to connect on LinkedIn. I'm always really curious about the why. Yes. Often often I think they're asking me to connect for them and it's apparent that they're asking me to connect for them because as they've seen something in your profile that they think is good for them, very hard to get a yes answer to that. I can't remember if I've spoken about this before on the podcast, but I'm very strict on LinkedIn and if people send me an invitation to connect, I always go back to them and say, what is it about me? Why do you want to connect with me? And I actually won't connect with you until we've met. That can be a Zoom call, as is the case for everybody these days. And interestingly, about every single person I respond to saying, happy to connect, but we need to meet first, about 10% of people respond. And probably only about half of those that even respond in the first instance go ahead and make a time to have a chat to me, which is such a shame because I love it. I had two conversations yesterday with people who had just sought to connect over LinkedIn and then we had a conversation and it was fabulous. You could actually find out about that person and find out what they're about and find out about each other. Anyway, that's by the by. Okay, so... The other thing I wanted to touch on with you is around executive leadership coaching and your experience there and what you've learned from that. What can you tell us there? When I first got the role of chair of the, or I was actually deputy chair of the Super Complaints Tribunal and then about 18 months later I became the chair because the chair retired or I became acting chair and then there was a process of appointment. And it was a much bigger role than I'd been used to and it required significantly more emotional intelligence and significantly higher levels of interaction than I had before because this was a role appointed by the Governor-General. There's only one of them in Australia, reports the Australian Parliament. You get to hang out with really cool people and I was very untrained in the ways of hanging out with really cool, really senior people and I thought I need some executive coaching and I 
ran into this guy and I started executive coaching with him. So that would have been around about 2006, I guess, mm-hmm. my first, or maybe 2007. And I've always paid for my executive coaching myself. Nobody's ever paid for me and I still have it today. But I, interestingly, that person, after a while, I realised I needed something slightly more senior. And so I went, I knew someone who was an executive coach who I'd known for years and years and she and I, re- I reconnected with her for the purpose of talking to her about becoming my coach. And she has been absolutely fabulous. So I was with him for a couple of years and then I, I went to, to her. What I love about executive, good executive coaching is that it, it teaches you about what behaviours you need to learn, which core behaviours are holding you back. And also it's a safe space to talk through the things that are that you're finding difficult. So I've been with her now probably since about 2009, so maybe 10, 11 years, and and I intend to stay with her for the rest of my working life because I'm learning all the time about there are some behaviours that will always be learned behaviours for me. And, for instance, to learn how to pause and stop and listen and also the transactional analysis about having adult conversations and the knowing and seeing when a conversation stops being an adult to adult conversation and starts being a critical parent or a vulnerable child or whatever those aspects and and the skill of bringing if I'm still in adult space and the other person's moved or vice versa the skills to bring both of us back into adult space so we can actually get whatever it is that we're talking about sorted and you have to practice those things for the rest of your life to be a leader I think so I know that I will always have to have learned behaviours. And the skill is when I walk out of a meeting and regret how the meeting went, you know, if I've lost my cool or something's happened, actually leaning into that and learning from it. And that's where I think an executive coach can be such a great help because they bring their learning about how human thinking works. And I, I don't know much about that. But they also will, she will challenge me to actually experiment and to actually take risks and to actually do things differently and if it doesn't work, to stop, then to assess. I wouldn't be where I am today without executive coaching. There's no question in my mind. The the value of that, and it's not cheap, but the value of that in terms of me being able to be a person of influence and a senior leader is partly because of who I am but partly because of my willingness to, to learn for the rest of my life about myself and about other people and about effective interactions and influence and what what influence actually looks like. And there's nothing better than you say something to somebody that you know you feel is important and you see it reflected back in something that they've told someone and suddenly it's on in an article or, or uh, you know, in the news or and you think, yeah, I said that, you know, and, and that path of influence. and But being able to grasp those things and being able to constantly learn, it's good to have a coach with you on that journey, I think. Oh, it's all music to my ears, Jocelyn. Um, as somebody who has had a coach in the past and who actually practices coaching now, I'm loving over the last kind of 10 to 15 years, I feel like coaching has really become, it used to be seen as remedial. You know, you got a coach and people thought, oops, you know, Helia's got a coach, that can't be good. Whereas now it's really seen more and more as an essential tool in the toolkit for helping people around awareness and self-reflection and learning and leading and leadership more and more, which is exactly what I'm hearing from your experience of it. And, and the whole change in conversation from intelligence to emotional intelligence and what emotional intelligence looks like and how you can 
you know, how you can point to someone and say, gee, they've got really good EQ. Well, I don't think that just happens naturally. I think you do need to practice. When I did the AICD course last year, you know, one of the things that really resonated with me is that one of the most important skills of a board director is self-awareness. You can only get self-awareness by opening yourself up to someone that you trust in a safe place to say, tell me what the perception of me is from someone else and be open to learning Actually, you don't come across that great when you say X, Y, Z or when you do X, Y, Z. And also the appreciation of different personality types. I don't think I ever really thought about the fact that people are different from me and respond differently from me given the same set of facts. And what's fascinating to me about this whole COVID-19 thing is, and I'm really hoping that someone does a study about it, that all of the world's leaders have been given exactly the same problem. And a study of all of their reactions and what they've done about it. So you look at Donald Trump's reaction compared to Jacinda Ardern's reaction. It's fascinating to me and people's reflections about being open to other people telling them, actually, you don't look that great or have you thought about doing this in a different way or what outcome are you trying to achieve? So the outcome for the setting up the SCT Advisory Council was to get to improve the governance and to get as a group of people to, to sanity check the way I was running the place really. Outcome which I didn't expect was when I decided that I wasn't going to apply for another term at the tribunal was that two of those people come to me and say, we want to work with you. And that was fabulous. And I did. I've worked with, I've worked with both of them subsequent to that. And I, and I didn't do it as a marketing exercise at all, but it turned out that they'd seen me operate, they'd seen me every quarter for four or five years, and they wanted to work with me. And that was just fantastic. Oh, so some of those lessons I'm hearing also also reinforce for me, you know, that reflection and how other people perceive you and so on also reinforces for me the importance of regular board evaluations and having those board evaluations done externally as well. And also just the importance of, I was going to say executive leadership coaching, maybe it's non-executive leadership coaching, because it's about not just when you're in those executive roles, but also in non-executive roles and independent roles, that this reflection is just as important, if not more important, because you don't have colleagues in the same way as you do when you're in an organisation. Absolutely. And I think it's the real challenge of non-executive directorships is that you dip in and out of relationships. When you're in the executive world, you're working with people every day, five days a week, you see them or virtually see them. You know how they think. When you're on a board, you might only see those people half a dozen times a year. And so the impression that you make and the contribution that you make and your relationship with them is condensed into these little pockets. And that's where it's even more important, I think, to be self-aware because you can't just bowl in and be yourself, someone who doesn't know you like a colleague would know you. And everything you say has is the impact that you have, it's not that you have a greater impact, it's that you have an impact in absence of a continuum of the relationship. And so for me, the executive coaching around the board directorships when I moved from being executive to non-executive was equally important because every impression is a first impression when it's only six times a year. Yeah, absolutely. You have to just be really aware of the impact of your words and your behaviour and, you know, I'd, I'd never really had an appreciation of how hard it can be for chairs of boards if they've got really strong personalities in the room, corralling those personalities, knowing that you're only going to see these people six times a year, but you need to get really good decisions out of them. Yes. Oh, so much wisdom in there. Yet again, we've gone over time, Jocelyn, but I just 
also at the same time want to continue the conversation. I am cheekily just going to throw in there, which is a little bit cheeky of me, but it's my podcast so I can do that. But to say that the Board Accelerator program that I run, which is a group program for women, was exactly for this reason. Because when we're board directors together, it's, it's not the same relationship as colleagues. And sometimes you just need that safe space to talk to others about the challenges you're facing or your emotional intelligence or dealing with people, whatever it may be. And it's exactly why I created that program, so that women can come together and share some of those things. So could not agree more about the importance of some of those things. Jocelyn, amazing. So I'm wondering from the conversation that we've had today, both about the superannuation, it is such a long title, isn't it? Superannuation complaints... Tribunal Advisory Council, there you go, I've got it, and about coaching and reflection. What are the main points you want people to take away from the conversation that we've had today? I think one of the main points is that every interaction you have with people is important. It's really important to not be an overt marketer. You will have an impact on people and and use all the skills you can to put your best foot forward because you never know where it's going to lead. It had an extraordinarily wonderful outcome the tribunal and then for myself after after I left the tribunal. And I think the importance of self-awareness, of being prepared to learn, being willing to learn and being willing to move into learning from being uncomfortable and trialling new things and not being scared to try different things and see what happens if what you did before hasn't worked. Some of the, your best behaviours are always going to be learned and you have to practise them for your whole life. Thank you once again for being on the Take On Board podcast. Just so many pearls of wisdom in there that I know people will get a lot from. I know they did from the last one as well. So thank you for updating us on the situation at Strathcona with COVID-19. And thank you for sharing more of your story with us today on the podcast. It's a pleasure, Helia. Thank you for inviting me. That's a wrap for the Take On Board podcast today. I do this podcast because I love bringing good women together. So it's great to be able to share these conversations that I'm having with these amazing group of women with you. Now, can I ask a favour? Could you share this podcast with someone you know? Perhaps you can share it with some of your board colleagues or someone else that you know that's interested in exploring all things boards and governance. With your help, we can grow the Take On Board community. Last but not least, if you want to continue the conversation, you can also join us over in the Take On Board Facebook group, where there's lots of great discussions, tips, tricks and resources being shared. I would love it if you can join in the conversation there. You can find it by searching Take On Board in Facebook. Thanks for listening and tune in next week for another fabulous conversation.